Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, today, thank you so much for tuning in. Now, back in times past, and well, even still yet in some places today, we've talked, and we talked about it several times in the past episodes, the uh, Appalachian Mountains are a world unto themselves. <clears throat> you used to hear folks say we bury our own. That uh, saying came from the fact that, uh, well, yes, we actually did, and still do. I still remember my great-grandfather being laid out in his nice black suit right there in the living room of my grandpa's house after he passed away back in 1966. Now, when somebody passed on, most of the time a family member would go fetch the doctor who'd come over, confirm the death, and uh, then go on to prepare the body for burial. Now, that was because undertakers were rare to find in the mountains, so the doctor doubled up as the undertaker. Most folks don't know that there weren't many folks who did embalming in this country until after the Civil War. Now, and there were even fewer that headed into the mountains to find work. Most of the time, all the doctor could do was comfort the family and help clean and dress the body for burial. That was unless he saw something that just didn't add up, like, say, maybe a bullet hole or something along those lines. Then he'd have to decide what to do from there. Now, come on in, have a seat. Let me tell you what happened in Greenup, Kentucky back in 1927. Magdalene Pitts was born in Manaphy County, Kentucky on June 5th, 1924 to Robert Herman Pitts and Lucy Walker Wilson Green. Now by 1927, Robert was working at Armco in Ashland and had took in a housekeeper named Marie Frazier. He did that because Miss Lucy had got plumb tired of the way he handled things, which, according to what I could find, usually included your good stiff beatings passed around like fried taters at a church supper along with a drink or twelve to kick things off in the morning. Now, I reckon you could consider white lightning to be cornflakes in a jug. That way you could have it for breakfast. Sounds a little bit like I might have been there, don't it? But Miss Lucy and Robert were never married. They'd actually become involved 
with one another because she was the Pitt's housekeeper just before Robert's first wife dropped over, dead her in the door now, out of the blue while trundling around the cabin one day. There was never any suspicion or anything of any wrongdoing at the time, so she was promptly buried and the family moved on. Now, anyway, <clears throat> little Mary Magdalene lived with her father, his new housekeeper, and her brothers and sisters in a run-down old cabin on Culp Creek in Greenup County, uh, Kentucky. Mary was with her father because when Miss Lucy left, and again, this is from what I could find, Robert threatened to kill her with his trusty shotgun along with pretty much everybody else in the house, including himself, if she tried to take her. Now, Miss Lucy left with the notion of coming back and getting little Mary as soon as she was able. It sounds like she might have just barely got out of there alive to me. But <clears throat> when the old mountain doctor George K. Woods answered his door on December 30th, 1927, he saw two of Robert Pitt's children who'd trundled all the way over to his place on foot in a god-awful snow. Now, they said that they were sent to fetch him back and to their place because they told him that Mary had died overnight and they needed his help getting her ready for burial. Now, he opened up the door while telling them that he'd have to get some things together before he headed out, thinking maybe, you know, that they might want to come in and warm up a bit before heading back. They just turned and walked back toward the pit's place. Sounded to me like somebody might have told them to what to say and not to say no more and then just get the hell back home that's what it sounds like but dr woods who may have very well not been a doctor in the sense that he could had a sheepskin from a college with doctor wrote next to his name but he was most likely a doctor trained by another doctor who was trained by another doctor but there's no telling how many generations back the line went but somewhere along the line there was somebody with a sheepskin from a college with Dr. Roke next to his name, and he was the one that started it all up. And that happened because there just wasn't many doctors who cared to venture out into the mountains to deal with hillbillies because of popular consensus among most people in the country that saw us as extremely dangerous backwoods trigger happy idiots that would soon look kill you and look at you. Now, of course, that all come from the national news coverage of a few feuds taking place around Appalachia during the prime time of yellow journalism, primarily the Hatfield-McCoy feud. Now, yellow journalism refers to a time when newspapers ruled the news cycles and they took full advantage of their power. They realized that their primary purpose was to sell newspapers, not get the news correct. So there was a good bit of artistic license given to the reporters of the day and they took full advantage of that. In other words, they could just make stuff up to sell newspapers and one of their biggest sellers was the backwoods, uneducated, empty-headed, inbred hillbilly. Now, kind of like the news you see on the news channels today. Yeah, there you have it. Uh, yeah, I said it and uh, folks, I'll be here spitting truth until somebody comes and stops me or I might drop over doing it, one or the other. Dr. Woods was expecting to do what he always did in those situations, you know, try to comfort the family and while he was preparing the little girl for burial. He knew that it wasn't going to be an easy thing to do. He'd been a mountain doctor for a long time, and even though he'd seen the passing of more than his share of children, it wasn't never easy. It just wasn't an uncommon thing in this country for a child not to make it. In fact, it was true all the way up through the 1950s. Of course, it was part of the services he offered, 
and Dr. Woods also dispensed home remedies and delivered babies as part of what he did in the mountains. Now, when Dr. Woods got over to the Pitts place, he didn't find a little girl that had died of natural causes. What he found was the horrifically tortured and mutilated body of little Mary. He instantly knew something was up. He refused to help bury her and left. He went just as straight as his horse could take him and did something that mountain folk don't often do. He reported Mary's death and the condition to the county coroner, Mel Compton, as was what he reported or what he suspected to be murder. And then Dr. H.T. Morris headed up the mountain with Coroner Compton and County Patrolman C.F. McNeil to see exactly what the Blue Blazers was going on over at the Pitts place. Now, they showed up on December 31st with instructions from County Ju- Judge Robert Parsons uh, that would be known today, folks, as a search warrant. When they trotted up the, to the cabin, a crowd had already gathered in the Pitts cabin, and if any offering any help they could that's just the way that it were in some places in the mountains still are done that way i guess somebody you know dies you help them work the farm clean pray with them or maybe bring them a little something to eat nearly all the folks who live nearby would show up and pitch in any way they could but of course the visit from the official authorities was met with a little bit of concern by the folks gathered around Robert was gone to his workplace at Armco to collect money for, from a workers' fund for flowers for funerals of family members. Now, when I said earlier that we bury our own, I meant that we didn't need any help from the government to do it. So you can imagine the looks and comments coming from the folks that day as the men came up in their official capacity, and it didn't get any better once they got inside the cabin. Marie Fraser, remember, she was Robert's current housekeeper, and who was, it turned out, pregnant with uh, his child yet again, and was outright defiant, and one might say aloof, kind of like one of them folks that get pulled over on cops that refuse to roll the window down and like to explain that they wasn't doing nothing wrong because they weren't driving, they were traveling. Robert finally rode up and acted completely shocked by the intrusion of the bureaucrats into his home. But just like with the traveler and the car on cops that keeps sliding his meaningless paperwork through a slit in the window, and that didn't stop him from doing exactly what they come there to do. By this time, old Doc Woods had went back home and pretty much barricaded himself in the cabin until news of the whole thing came out and local folks learned the truth. Now, folks, what I'm about to tell you ain't for the faint of heart. I went through a whole bushel of different emotions while I was reading up on it, and with the last one being just flat pissed off. The only way to possibly understand the evil we're dealing with in this story is to tell it like it is. Now let me go ahead and warn you here that if you're sensitive to child abuse, well, you might want to skip forward a little bit because child abuse is putting it mildly. But uh, you might want to skip a couple of minutes ahead. Uh, What the investigators found inside the cabin was what they called the most horrific thing they'd ever seen in their lives. They would go on to say later that in their lives that they had never again saw anything remotely close to what they saw that day. Now, Mary was beaten, bruised, and even burned. She had a big U-shaped gash on her head that was attributed to a smack from a fireplace poker. She had been whipped with bundles of switches as they lay in a pile nearby with a 
razor hauling strap too that hung on the wall. She was held over a fire until her back blistered and both salt and turpentine were rubbed into her open wounds. Her hand had been frozen from being forced to drink water from the frozen McCoy branch, which is a small stream that fed up into Colt Creek near their cabin. Some of Mary's wounds were in various stages of healing, which meant that she had been subjected to the torture for a long time. The head, it, head wound itself was about a week old. The hole in her back above her kidneys was filled with dried blood. It was an old wound that hadn't properly healed due to the continuous ongoing trauma. Folks, this is awful and it ain't gonna get no better. Stick around, you're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. All that being going on, of course, Robert and Marie both sat there with their stoned-over faces of denial, saying that they'd never hurt the girl at all. Marie did say that Mary had fell down and hit her head on the fireplace grate that caused a U-shaped wound in her head. Both of them admitted to whipping her, but said that they'd never did anything beyond that. But the extent of the wounds on little Mary called them both a dead gum lie. Now, the man, the men, took Mary's little body to green up to be further examined by autopsy. And they didn't forget about Robert Pitts and Marie Fraser either because they were arrested, dragged off the front porch, and taken in for some more questioning. I suppose Marie attempted to prove her innocence by threatening to kill the coroner before they got to town. I don't know why else she'd do it, but she didn't try to act on the threat, but she was mad as hell and being charged, and she kept on denying all the charges loudly and continuously, like an old wet hen, while she bounced around the back of a buckboard wagon in shackles all the way to town, down the holler and out into town, matter of fact. Now, Coroner Constant, Dr. Morris, and the local undertaker, LG staff, did Mary's examination there at Greenup. It didn't take long for all of them to find out that what they thought had happened to Mary was obviously true. Mary was seriously abused and even tortured. Now, poisoning was also suspected, and Coroner Compton filled out the death certificate, listing the cause of death as probably due to shock, with exposure a contributing factor. He included the words, probably a homicide is the manner because any one of the injuries at little Mary's body would have been fatal, any one of them. Now, he did that even though during his visit to the pet's cabin, he'd been threatened not to list death as a homicide or else. I reckon else meaning that he'd wind up with a fatal case of lead poisoning from a double-barrel shotgun blast. Now, once the autopsy was done, Mary was finally properly prepared for burial. The local folks, along with the railroad company, paid the funeral expenses, and the local folks took it a step further by commissioning a beautiful headstone that still stands by her grave, and I'll post a picture of that on our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, if you want to see it. Now, the folks at first had thought a lot of Robert and Marie when they learned that Mary had died and what happened and to be the ones who were standing around the cabin, you know, when uh, everything was going down to start with. When the bureaucrats showed up, they were now about as pissed off as a human being could get it, both of them. Now, threats of <clears throat> good old-fashioned mountain justice started to circulate around about them parts. 
When word got back to the police at the jail that Robert and Marie were about to be invited as guests of honor to a next stretching party, they dressed them up in police uniforms and slipped them out the back door into a brand new jail cell in Winchester in Clark County. While folks were out front throwing ropes over tree limbs and knocking on the jail doors with axes. Now, they were taken there because it was thought to be probably the most secure jail in eastern Kentucky. Now, that must have rattled them both because that made them a little more able to read the writing on the wall or just plain scared a little bit of reality into them because both of them started pointing fingers at each other for what happened to Mary. Robert came up with a story claiming that it happened while he was working at Armco, all while Mary was whining about Robert that he beat Mary all the time and for an extended period and even let it slip that he'd probably killed a son a few years back as well. Robert kept on saying that Marie was scared to that Mary's mother Lucy would come back for Mary and that jealousy of Mary and Lucy was a big problem for Marie. And Marie kept her story going too. She claimed that Robert had been beating a child since she came to live there. While Robert said Marie wanted Mary dead before her own child was born, Robert added that Marie thought she was saving Mary from a whole life of scorn with her being born out of wedlock and all. Folks, these two were just plain evil. I mean, after all, what did Marie think her child was being born as? (laughs) In the jail at Winchester, Robert scribbled out a 54-page confession with which he claimed he had uh, consented to the murder after Marie had put dope in his coffee. Now, he said that Marie had left Mary hanging upside down in the barn. Now, she had been put in a burlap sack and was hung from a nail on a wall for hours. He even had his confession notarized because the moron thought that once it, that was done, and he'd be, what he had told him was going to be deemed to be the truth. Now, Marie was busy, too. She wrote her own 34-page confession claiming that Robert had killed a girl by busting her in the head with a fireplace poker. Folks, this crap kept going until a judge later just laughed both versions out of court. What they did manage to do by keeping it going like that was to work up a national media into a hillbilly hating friends frenzy, and especially those two hillbillies. Now, while Robert and Marie sat in a Clark County jail telling their latest versions of what happened, jailer J.J. Hammond reported finding two slips of paper on Robert when he was brought in. The first had a listing of things for him to pick up to get ready for the burial of Mary after he she was killed. On his list was three yards bleach, two yards lace, three yards white veil, three yards pale blue ribbon, white stockings, white slippers, spool white thread, plain black hose, three yards to cover casket, eight yards lace to two inches wide, three yards bleach muslin, two boxes of carpet tacks, two pounds quilt bottom, and candles. Now, the three yards of bleach didn't mean that, you know, get bleached to clean up the mess. That and bleach muslin were colors of cloth, I reckon, for use to make Mary's burial dress. Now, the one Doc Woods, who by now was out of his barricade and going about his business as usual, was supposed to use, you know, to prepare a murder victim for burial without asking any questions. You know, the second note was a little bit more evil. It said uh, 
better not kill her now, or better kill her now than to wait until she's grown, then uh, we'd have to use a shotgun to blow her brains out. That's probably the truest statement either of them made or wrote about the feelings toward Mary. Folks, all they ever had to do was let Miss Lucy come get her daughter. Now, when Robert said Marie was jealous, I think he was right, but uh, there was a whole lot more of I'm going to take control of this going on too. There was finally some real evidence that brought light to the true story of what happened to the poor defenseless little girl. It now looked like both of the idiots were guilty of the horrors done to Mary. Folks, that's when they got tried and if found guilty, marched directly out behind the courthouse by the sheriff, made to dig a hole, and as they were taking the final scoop out, pop them both behind the ear with a 38 and let them drop in it. Then wait till the day cools off a little bit before you go back out there and fill the hole up. That's the way it's done, but uh, that's just uh, me. Not the legal system. Then came two more things that stepped it all up a notch. The state lab back in Lexington found poison in the contents of Mary's stomach. And Judge Parsons finally allowed Mary's body to be buried. Now, she had uh, been kept at the funeral home on display from January 1st to January 15th. And the funeral home uh, had an event like no other ever seen in the little town of Greenham. At least 10,000 people came to pay their respects and then demand justice. That was on the day of the funeral. Her body was placed in the courthouse lawn at the gazebo there, and people filed by for hours on both sides of the casket. Now, the story had folks so mad and hurt that for Mary that the, a grave site had been donated by local businessman Elmer or Elwood Kenner. It was a huge event for that area, folks, at the time, and still would be today. Mary was carried by little girls as pallbearers. She was taken to Riverview Cemetery on a hill at Greenup and buried with the only doll she ever owned. By that time, a special grand jury was convened in Greenup, and both Robert and Marie were indicted for willful murder. Gotta follow the law here, folks, no matter how bad any of us want five minutes alone in the room with them. Undertaker's staff was a key witness for the prosecution. His assistance in the examination of the body led him to write a statement saying, I have been a licensed embalmer since 1913 and have never seen a body in such shape. To my mind, this is the most brutal and horrible murder that could have been committed. A helpless, defenseless baby murdered by people to whom she should have been able to look for protection. Testimony was also given by Doc Woods and the investigators. The Pitts children testified the ones left standing, that was, and neighbors came out and told their stories, too. Now, the grand jury testimony was sealed, but written statements by witnesses wasn't. Statements like undertaker staffs were all accessible to the public, and the newspaper took full advantage of that, too. The folks, there wasn't any wonder why the community was ready to drag them out and burn them at the stake. Now, once the trial started, a change of venue was requested and granted for the trial not only because of the threat of lynching but uh, according to some it was felt that there was less chance of giving the defense defendants the death penalty in Greenup County they wanted those warped deviants to swing Vanceburg in Lewis County was the chosen place for the trial the atmosphere there was a little better than it had been in Greenup 
Mary's story was a national event, though, so the folks in Lewis County knew all about it all too well. And what was seen and <clears throat> out of the wild blue yonder stunt, seen as an owl out of the wild blue yonder stunt, Marie suddenly stood up and pled guilty to the murder, acting on the advice of her mother, Miranda Frazier, and going against the better judgment of her court-appointed lawyer, who then put his face in his hands and muttered something about hillbillies. Her mother, somewhere along the line, had convinced her that the only way to save her life was to throw herself on the mercy of the court, and it would give her a good standing to put most of the blame on Robert. Ever more god-awful charges were leveled by her <clears throat> in new claims. She now said that Robert told her that he was killing Mary by inches. Of course, Robert did the same thing they were doing in jail and came back with some more counter-charges of his own. By the time they were done wearing out their fingers pointing at each other, just about everybody in the court was sick, tired, disgusted, and mad as hell. They were both convicted in a trial and by separate juries. It took 12 whole minutes of tenuous deliberation for the jury to come back with a guilty verdict on Marie and a few a little bit longer for the same on Robert. The, to the shock of the entire country, neither of them received death sentence. Both were given life in prison. Possibly this was due to the fact that a woman had never been hung in Lewis County and the thought was that they couldn't hang one and give the other life and still be thought of as fair. Now, she might have escaped being the first woman hung in the county, but she was the first woman to get a life sentence there. Now, Kentucky law allowed anybody given a life sentence to apply for parole after serving just eight years. Eight years, folks. Now, Marie would go on to serve 12 years in prison, being paroled in 1940. Robert spent 14 years in the Stony Lonesome before getting his walking papers in 1942 and promptly moving to Kansas City, Missouri, where he finally dropped over of old age in 1964 and was buried there. Marie was thought to have lived until 1985 near St. Petersburg, Florida. She was able to escape all the public backlash later in life. Not that I really cared too much or tried too hard, but I couldn't find the exact date of either one of them's death and didn't care to look anymore. I just know that it didn't happen soon enough for either one of them to suit me. And the folks, we can only look at what's happened in the past to tell us what people were capable of and try to do our best not to let it happen again. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of folks that don't want to hear this type thing and they're blissfully unaware of the evil that lives in the hearts of men. So this type of thing still goes on even today. I hope you, my good friends, got something out of our story today. It was one that cried out for telling. If you did, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe or follow depending on where you listen. Join us over on Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend where we talk about everything Appalachian or about anything else you want to bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I'll see you then.